Well, uh, thank you so much for being here this evening. My name is Kevin Conover, and um, you are listening on, if you're down here in Southern California, you're listening on KPraise 1210 AM. And uh, we're also on FM 106.1 in North County. And uh, then, of course, we're all over the web. We're all over streaming all over the world, too. And uh, I've got good news and bad news. And um, I'll share a little bit here with you. I'll give you the good news first. This is pretty interesting. Uh, not something you would think of when you think of COVID, but listen to this. An Annenberg Public Policy Center poll in September suggests that the coronavirus pandemic has led to an increase in Americans' knowledge of the United States government and constitution. It reported that of the U.S. adults polled, 56% correctly named all three branches of government. This is the highest rate since the survey began in 2006. Now, that's a, that's a low bar, of course, there, right? But, but hey, that's good news. 59% uh, of respondents said that they had taken a civics course in high school that focused on the constitution or judicial system. 48% said they had taken a college course that focused on the U.S. system of government and the constitution. Asked to name the five rights protected by the First Amendment, freedom of speech was named by 74% compared with 48% in 2017. So that's pretty cool. Um, looks like uh, people are because of the threat of uh, you know, government uh, control, and, and it seems like government has decided that they can take away people's freedoms because of the coronavirus, uh, looks like more people are interested in knowing their rights. Now, here's the bad news. According to a July 2020 Pew Research poll, 54% of US adults say belief in God is not necessary to be moral, compared with 44% that say belief in God is necessary to be moral. Now, between 2002 and 2019, the percentage of American adults who believe it is necessary to believe in God in order to be moral and have good values dropped from 58% in 2002 to 44% in 2019. That's a 14% drop. Now, here's a really interesting little uh, twist to this. This is not reflected internationally. So for example, in Japan, it actually increased by 10% and Bulgaria it increased by 17% in their view that it is necessary to believe in God in order to be moral and have good values. So this is, this is all uh, very interesting stats here and all, but um, all in all, the, the fact of the, of the matter is, is that our constitutional rights, our view of morality, these are all interconnected. And my guest today is Douglas Gibbs. Let me tell you a little bit about him real quick. Um, he's the president of the Constitution Association. He's a fellow of the American Freedom Alliance, a sentinel for the Heritage Foundation, and an instructor on the United States Constitution. He's, he's had television appearances, including on Fox News, and he's also a United States Navy veteran. Uh, Mr. Gibbs, Douglas Gibbs, thanks so much for being on the program today. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for your service. Uh, we are blessed to have such a powerful uh, Navy and military and Americans who are patriotic and dedicated to their country. And um, we are very, very appreciative. So thank you so much. So um, Mr. Constitution here, um, tell us, uh, you know, our topic this evening is that it's necessary to have a godly foundation in order to have a free people, in order to have a, a constitution that's upheld. Um, break this down for us and tell us, how did you, how did you get interested in this subject matter? And why is it, why do you, why are you so passionate about this? Uh, before I do that, I'll open up with this. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, you know, the celebrated deist. If he was a deist, he wasn't a very good one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, one of his quotes, one of my favorite quotes by him, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. 
That's Benjamin Franklin. So to um, start our topic today, that is uh, really the crux of it and the foundation of what we want to talk about. And Benjamin Franklin said it so well. As for what I do and all that, uh, I have been a constitutionalist for the most part my entire life. Uh, there was this thing when I was a kid back in the 70s on ABC called Schoolhouse Rock. And Schoolhouse Rock, you know, influenced me, affected me. I was a, you know, a kid and young kid. I was still elementary age at the time when I first noticed it. But I was an advanced reader at the time. And I just asked my mom this, you know, preamble and no more King and all these different episodes. I want to know more about it. So she started taking me uh, to the uh, public library. I started staying after school at the school library more, and it wasn't enough. So uh, eventually my mom started taking me to the collegiate library. Uh, you, at the time, it, that was, um, I think it was Long Beach, uh, University of California, Long Beach. <laughs> but uh, I lived in Long Beach at the time when I was uh, at that age. And, um, and I'm going through college books to try to learn this stuff. I, like I said, I was an advanced reader fortunately for me. Um, and uh, by the time I was 15, and my folks had moved to Corona, I was an Inland Empire kid by then. Um, I thought I had a pretty good handle on the Constitution. I entered the Navy, served uh, four years. I've been married for 37 years. I've got seven grandkids, two, two children, um, and served uh, you know, in the Navy. I worked at a credit union. I worked for a city. I was in construction for 20 years, did some truck driving, and um, and all of that. And I never really used it. And then uh, when 9-11 happened, I started getting kind of involved locally. It kind of set, you know, woke me up to say, you know, Doug, you need to be more involved. Hmm. And then the, the uh, election of um, in 2008 is when it really got me going. Uh, simultaneously, I just so happened to started to get in, involved in radio. I start, And uh, then I I uh, was knocking on doors for a congressional candidate, and I was talking to the person knocking on doors with as She says, you know, gosh, you know, you know a lot about the Constitution. You ought to get to know the Tea Party. There's a local Tea Party. I'm like, oh, really? I heard about those. Yeah, let's check it out. Mm. So I joined the Temecula Tea Party following weekend. I'm handing out pocket constitutions. I'm answering questions. She says to me, because she's helping me again, she says, wow, you're so good at this Constitution that you should teach classes. I'm like, yeah, I guess, Whatever. Uh, two weeks later, she contacts me. Okay, the gun a gun shop has a, a classroom you can use for your classes. I had never taught before. I hadn't even been in my mind. The first six months was horrible. I knew, didn't know what I was doing. I finally decided, you know what? I'm just going to go line by line through the Constitution. Class got so popular that I had oh, 40 to 50 people every week, free class, donations if you want to help with gas kind of thing. And uh, it's exploded since then. I've since written eight books. My eighth one just came out on December 20th called Creator. Oh, congratulations. Um, That's fantastic. Oh, thank you. And, uh, you know, two radio programs, one on K-Praise, one on KMET up in uh, Riverside County. Uh, I've done a, a couple of speaking tours. Last October, I did a, a tour that uh, covered uh, Corpus Christi, uh, Texas, um, let's see, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky, Colorado Springs. And um, and I, I've, I've done some TV, I've done, you know, radio with you know, folks like you. And it's just blown up. Why? Because people are realizing we're in trouble. They know in their gut because we were raised with liberty. It's sort of like being a Christian. When mm. you have Christ, you know when something's wrong. Yeah. Because he fulfilled the law. You know it's self-evident, as it says in the Declaration of Independence. Same thing with growing up in liberty. In our guts, we know, or at least some of us know, something's wrong. And so the yearning to learn more so that we can pinpoint that 
has exploded. And uh, so therefore what I do has exploded. And, you know, my, my main goal is I'm a firm believer that not only is a virtuous society capable of freedom, but if you go to, uh, to, to a gentleman by the name of James Madison, you know, the father of the constitution, kind of important guy, mm-hmm. he said a well-instructed people alone can be permanently a free people. So we need to be a virtuous people and an instructed people. So mm. that's what I do. I, I work on both. Uh, and, and when I talk about the U.S. Constitution and I get into it, I explain to people, while the Constitution is the blueprint for our structure here that we have, cr- the creator, God, is the keystone. Without that keystone, it all collapses. Mm. I love that. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting to me because there is such a thirst for this, mm-hmm. like you're saying. Um, what is it that people, what, what is it that people are missing? Meaning when you, when you look out and about and you're, you're traveling and you're speaking about these things or you're on the radio or whatever you're doing and you're talking about these and, and you're having these dialogues with people, where is the gap in the education that is you know, you, you just quoted James Madison that an educated people, a virtuous people, um, where is it, is their education lacking that would potentially bring harm to, to, uh, you know, us as a community, us as a, as a culture, us as a nation, where is that gap in, in the knowledge that's really a, a dangerous gap? Unfortunately, it's all the way across the board. And I'm going to apologize to you ahead of time, because even you, missed the when you were talking before uh you know and introducing and you you used some phraseology that was completely inaccurate okay all have been time and and i i want to apologize first but you'll understand when i get into this sure sure. Uh, we have all been taught wrong because we believe well you know you know the old thing right you i tell you uh something and then you go tell someone else by the time it gets down to 40 people it's a totally different story Sure. We that's what has happened, but it's been not only happened because we naturally do that as humans, but because it's been intentionally done. So, for example, you talked about our constitutional rights and the five rights that are protected by the First Amendment. We don't have constitutional rights. We have natural rights, God given rights. Mm. The Constitution doesn't give us rights. It enumerates them. It lists them. But our rights come from God. It's a gift from God. And if God gives you something, it's not a government's business. It's yours. God gave it to you. Our rights belong to us because they're God-given. And we are the only system built with that as a part of the foundation. Uh, Number two, the First Amendment doesn't protect our rights. The Constitution doesn't protect our rights. Government's not supposed to protect our rights. The word protect is not used in the Constitution. They are there according to the uh, preamble and according to the Declaration of Independence to secure our rights. I don't want them protecting my rights. When Rome went from a Roman Republic to a Roman Empire and the uh, soldiers became the enemy because they became this horrible, mean, tyrannical enforcement arm, you would not have accepted the Roman troop jumping up in front of you, holding up a shield and saying, don't worry, I'll protect you against me. Well, of course, he's the problem. We don't want him. I, I don't want him protecting me from him. Mm. government's the problem our rights the greatest threat to our rights is government therefore they're not there to protect our rights and the constitution and the declaration doesn't say they're there to protect them they're there to secure them they're not also not there to guarantee them because guarantee is an interesting word well we're gonna guarantee your education we're gonna guarantee your health care well if the word guarantee is appropriate it would apply to all rights right so where's my guaranteed gun 
Mm. Ah, suddenly it doesn't apply. Well, then it's not a proper definition. Secure is the word used. It says in the Declaration of Independence that among these uh, uh, rights uh, are life, liberty, and and uh, the pursuit of happiness. And to uh, per- secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And then in the uh, preamble says to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Why the word secure? Secure is not protect. Secure is to keep in place where it belongs. In other words, in your possession. Mm. You put a child in a car seat, not to protect them. You protect them, but not by not driving like an idiot. But that car seat's there to per- to secure them in place in case there is an accident. So that child's not flying through the, the vehicle and out the you know windshield mm. to secure. That is what government's there for, to restrain themselves and others from uh, unsecuring our rights and our possession. So if someone, for example, uh, I have the right to swing my arm. So if I punch you in the nose, I just interfered with your right. You have a right not to be punched in the nose. I have to be responsible with my right to swing arms. We have to be responsible with our freedoms and our rights. Well, government doesn't care until I punch you in the nose. Now, I've your 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 right not to be punched in the nose is no longer secure. Government now has to come in to say, okay, what happened? They're going to take the report. That's what police are for, right? Mm. They're not supposed to prevent the crime. They're supposed to take the report afterwards, figure out what happened, and then give punishment where punishment is due. That's what government's supposed to be for. So they're there to secure our rights. Mm, okay, so that's that's very interesting. Uh, so if you if you're just tuning in, my guest today is Douglas Gibbs, and uh, he is an expert on the Constitution. And you can visit him at douglasvgibbs.com. You can also check out his blog at politicalpistachio.com. And uh, so, Doug, when you when we when you talk about these issues again, um, you know this nuance between protecting our rights and securing our rights that you're that you're. It doesn't uh, seem like a big deal, but it is. Yeah. So. So among, along with that, what other issues are there where they're, um, let me quote, because um, you quoted James Madison, and I have a quote here, Okay. actually very similar to what you quoted um, from Sam Adams. And um, he says right here, if virtue and knowledge are diffused among the people, they will never be enslaved. This will be their great security. That's February 12th, 1779. It's interesting because it seems like a lot of the founding fathers um, we're really thinking along the same lines here mm-hmm. in, in regards to this. And they, they keep emphasizing uh, being informed, being knowledgeable, and then being virtuous. And mm-hmm. so again, where is the gap in the education, along with the fact you just established that, hey, your rights are secured, right? They are not protected. It's something that God has already given you. It's not something that the government is giving you. What other areas are people lacking in their understanding that is potentially jeopardizing our future freedoms as a, as a country? Historically, historically, when it comes to knowledge, uh, those who are virtuous tend to want to seek out truth. Those who are not tend to want to seek out something else to protect a narrative. Mm-hmm. So first of all, we have that. And when I said that, I guarantee you half the audience went, oh yeah, of course, because you know, they're <laughs> yeah. watching what's going on, right? Yeah. Frederick Douglass, which is one of my favorite people, escape slave, basically taught himself how to read and he had uh, poor white kids. He'd offer them bread to help him learn how to read. And uh, he said that knowledge is the ultimate emancipation. Hmm. Knowledge is the ultimate emancipation. Our bond, we have, we're not in bondage. And I don't think people understand that. First of all, you need to be involved and you need to understand this stuff. Uh, I I have a person in my life who one time I'll talk about this. He says, "Eh, you know, Nothing you could do. Government does what it does. And I'm just mm. going to run my life. 
that's the attitude of most people. And we yeah. do that. That's like, that's like the people that are out there with the cars that are supposed to stay in their own lane and they just go take a nap because they think the car is going to drive for them. You still got to have hands on. It can only do so much. Mm. You've got to have hands on to Tesla, make sure right? that you steer it in the right direction or you're going over the cliff. And so unless, first of unless all, it's people... a Tesla, unless it's a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or from what I hear for certain minivans. Uh, but uh, from what from, from what I'm seeing, people don't understand that involvement is important. See, liberty, if you look back in history, liberty is an exception, not the rule. Mm. Tyranny is the rule. Why? Tyranny is easy. You're told what to do and you obey. But liberty, that takes work. You've got to maintain it. You got to change the oil. You got to change the tires. You got to check the spark plugs. Liberty takes work. You got to do everything you can to keep that thing running properly. And to be honest with you, first of all, most people don't have the intestinal fortitude to do it. And second of all, most people don't realize it anymore because there's there is a group out there and a segment of people who don't want liberty maintained. And they have been fooling us. So we believe things that's not true. So I hear words all the time, democracy, nation. I climb the walls. We're not supposed to be a democracy. We're not a democracy. We shouldn't be a democracy while we're becoming one. Democracy is part of our problem. We're supposed to be a constitutional republic. We're not supposed to be a nation. We are a federation of states. A nation is is an entity that has a central government that controls everything. Mm. But we're a union of states that came together voluntarily and said, hey, you know, we need to be a country. Let's have a central system to help us handle the external stuff. But the internal stuff, we'll handle ourselves. Very different from the rest of the world. We're not supposed to be a nation. It drives that word drives me nuts. And and, and I may be nitpicking sometimes, it seems like, but there's a reason. It's just like when nationalism or nationalists, you know, and certain people are called, oh, I'm a proud nationalist. No, you're not nationalist means you want a centralized system that controls everything. Mm. So that's, so it's, it's, it's really all these details that people just aren't aware of. I mean, but but, but here's the thing, here's why it's important. Yeah. Because you can't understand the whole, if you don't understand those itty bitty little parts. Yeah. The whole suddenly starts to make different sense. Suddenly a well-regulated militia is not a collective militia uh, that, uh, is necessary because it's military, suddenly we realize, wait a second, the word regulated means to put in good order back then. So what a well-regulated militia really is, is a militia that's in good order. Mm. That's actually what they meant. And who's the militia? George Mason, the whole of the people and a few politicians. Wow. So, but we, we have to understand those truths. So you get those little details down, suddenly the bigger picture then starts to make more sense. And so i Focus on teaching everybody those little details, because when you become a mechanic to work on a car, they don't just give you an overall view of what the car is, how it's supposed to run. You got to get in there. You got to figure out why each bolt's where it's at, why it uses this type of oil, you know, what, what, what the, what the, the, the pressure in, you know, with the pistons and all that is, is what that means and so on and so forth. You need to know the details if you're going to properly work on that vehicle. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you're just a passenger. Yeah, no, I mean, everything you're saying makes so much sense. And especially understanding it in the context of, like you're saying, the, the way the founding fathers meant it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you're imposing, you know, modern modern terms on on terms that didn't mean what you what you thought they meant. Yeah, you know, it's one of one of my favorite things. I actually taught this today in one of my classes. Is uh, in Article One, Section uh, Five. Uh, it says that Congress shall meet at least once per year. And there were those that argued that was too often. <laughs> now that's funny 
And it's very funny. Well, well, why would he argue that? Because yeah. the federal government didn't have any domestic authorities. It doesn't have any domestic authorities. All of its authorities have to do with either preserving the union, protecting the union, union or promoting the union. In other words, external stuff or internal stuff like communication through postal services or disputes between the states. That's about the only internal stuff they have authority over. Everything else, it's external. And so if we're not at war, exclaimed a Mr. Jackson from Georgia uh, in one particular uh, a congressional hearing afterwards when they were debating over whether or not to ratify the Constitution, he says, why would I want to go to the Capitol and spend more time, time up there more than often than once a year if we're not at war? Because there's nothing to do. I've got a farm to take care of. I've got crops to take care of. I don't have time to be doing all of that. It's not their job anyway to do anything unless we're at war. So unless we're at war, I'm going to tend to my farm. Boy, it feels like we're a real long ways from that uh, that attitude. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, and, and, and we have this idea of a do nothing Congress. Well, you know, they they, they they don't think they're effective unless they're making more laws. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're not supposed to be making laws like that. I, I love do nothing Congresses. I remember <laughs> when Mr. Obama was president and people were criticizing him from go, for going to the golf course so much. I'm like, no, go golfing. Yeah. Don't be, and take Congress with you. Have a, like a two year tournament. There you go. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that, and, and so, uh, you know, people though, we've been convinced, no, government's got to be doing this. It got to be doing that. And, you know, uh, you know, the rioting happened. Well, government's got to fix this. No, we've got to fix it. Yeah. We handle our local stuff. Government's for that external stuff. Our local government and us, we are the ones. And yeah. we, we go, we are so quick to say, oh, where's government? We need their help. No, we need to get off our bottoms and start being involved in doing what we do. And that's a part of what the Constitution is about. The first three words are we the people for a reason. Mm. So, the, I mean, obviously, this, it, the, you know, the huge contradiction here is all the federal mandates coming down from <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, from Biden and yeah. and uh, others, you know, trying to tell us. Uh, Obviously, the glaring issue is COVID and and that all of a sudden, for whatever reason, the government feels it's got to have its hands in every everything. It just exploded uh, beyond where we were at. So what's the way back? Um, is this is this more people doing what you're doing and just getting educated uh, well, about the I'll, Constitution? I'll give you the way back real quick. But yeah. see, what they're claiming is their authority is emergency powers. Well, see, for the good of the community, your, your individual liberties have to be suspended for a moment. And you know, the last time I checked, I didn't see an asterisk in the Constitution. It doesn't say freedom of speech unless there's a virus. Mm. It doesn't say freedom of religion unless, you know, as long as you're vaccinated or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't say that. There's no asterisks. It's none of their business. It's individual liberty. Liberty is the free, <coughs> excuse me, liberty is the freedom to say no, first of all. So what's the way back? Hang on, what the whistle here? tough part about talking so much is your throat gets dry yep <laughs> um, so uh what's the way back uh so i'm gonna talk about the spiritual way back or the political way back the spiritual way back is this uh there was a gentleman by the name of alexander teitler he was a scottish philosopher political philosopher he died in 1813 and he had created this cycle that governments typically go through and he explained that systems of liberty and democracies uh don't last longer than 200 to 250 years. Hmm. We're at the edge, aren't we? Yeah. And, um, and he said that all cycles do this. They begin in bondage. 
then from bondage, the people, because, you know, there's no atheist in a foxhole, they cry out to God. So from bondage, you have spiritual faith. From spiritual faith, courage. From courage, liberty. Well, you look at the American Revolution. You can use that as your guidestone on that. And then from uh, liberty, abundance. Then from abundance, the system goes into selfishness, complacency, apathy, and ultimately dependency on the government and back to bondage. Wow. Now understand that the whole, and of course, we're close to that end of that cycle. The whole thing doesn't happen, though. The courage, the liberty, and the abundance, none of it starts unless you have spiritual faith first. Mm. So, and, and that's what he pointed out. First Amendment, what's the first right that's enumerated in the First Amendment? The freedom of religion. Why? Because we need to be in prayer first. Mm. We need to be good with God first. The Second Amendment came second for a reason. While I left my gun, First Amendment says, I got something even more powerful, the sword of the spirit. My first offensive weapon is the sword of the spirit from Ephesians 6. Mm. It came first in the Bill of Rights for a reason. And they understood this because what had triggered the Declaration, the Constitution, and the American Revolution was a great awakening that had begun back in 1734. I'm sure you know the story, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitefield, that, you know, they went from the halfway covenant. They were literally teaching hey, you know, when you accept Christ, you become, well, kind of a new creature, half of it, you know, as long as you're half good, you're good. I mean, that's pretty much what they were teaching, right? No, Edward says, no, you you accept Christ, you're a new creature completely. Yeah. Yeah. It it affects all parts of your life. And and it took off, it became this great awakening that wound up spreading through the entire set of colonies. If that had not have happened, the revolution, the declaration, and the constitution would not happen. So, mm. from a so, how do we get a hold of this? One of our problems is we think we're supposed to force government back into its godly box. No, mm. we're supposed to lead them there. We if we can't get the political house in order, if we can't get our spiritual house in order, mm. a culture, the politics runs as bright Andrew Breitbart. You say that that politics ran downstream from culture. Mm. If your culture is out of whack. Your politics will be out of whack. Get your culture under control. The, the, the cockroaches in Washington will be gone. Uh, so the, so when you say get our culture under control, what are you talking about specifically? You're talking about the schools. You're talking about media. I'm what talking, talking revival. About? I'm talking first to the people. It will then spread to media and all those things. But mm-hmm. at, we need a revival. We need mm-hmm. conversions. We need our country to turn back to Christ. We need well, I mean, we're this close to needing a Nineveh situation, man, where we're yeah. on our knees with sackcloth on our back. Uh, we better get our spiritual house in order. We can't. Liberty is not possible if we're not a virtuous people. We don't we, we're not capable of the Constitution if we don't have our godly house in order. If we are not a godly people, if we're not a spirit, uh, a virtuous people. If we don't understand the virtues from Christ and our faith. It, none of it's possible. It's not going anywhere. You can hope all you want. Hope does nothing if you don't have the faith in the uh, uh, powerful uh, being that is our creator. And so I want to. They uh, understood that. They said that in their yeah, writings. Yeah. I want to uh, talk so that, more that, about that. That's the spiritual way back. Uh, so my guest today is Doug Gibbs. If you um, are just tuning in or um, you want to uh, check this out more, um, douglasvgibbs.com. You can learn a lot more about the Constitution and the necessity of a godly foundation, politicopistachio.com. 
Um, and, and of course, I'm Kevin Conover. My website's educateforlife.org, and we've got all kinds of resources on there as well for you. Um, so, uh, Doug, I wanted to ask you about this. You know, in the very beginning of the show, I quoted a poll from the Pew Research poll. This is just from July 2020, um, not that long ago. 54% of U.S. adults say belief in God is not necessary to be moral, compared with 44% that say belief in God is necessary to be moral. This seems like a a pattern that we've been seeing for quite a while now um, is that the country is moving more towards agnosticism, atheism, um, moral relativism, these sorts of things. How would you respond to the person that says um, that we do not need God to be moral? Because you're emphasizing uh, very strongly that that is exactly what we need um, to be virtuous. Right before the collapse of the Roman Republic, Cicero wrote in his writings we have abandoned the traditions of our morals, and that is why we are collapsing. Uh, any society in history, the moment they abandon the, a moral foundation, they're done. In our current age, that moral foundation was built upon the, the uh, uh, foundation of Christ, our God, uh, and all of that. That creator, as I like to say, was the is the keystone of the system. Without the creator, without that belief system. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to be a Christian or this has to be a theocracy. Theocracies are dangerous. I don't want that. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying our culture better be based on those values. And we better be Christians, at least the majority of them, and following those values. Because honestly, you know, first of all, your faith is dead without the works. You're, you are going to be known by your fruit. And we and our fruit has been sour. And the, the polls that you just quoted, that was the same thing that was happening between 1662 and 1734, which is what ushered in that great awakening. Mm. In order to get butts in the pews, that's why they decided to do the halfway covenant. Well, you know, maybe if we softened things, didn't sound so scary, they'll start coming to church. They watered down the message. And what happened? That was almost that there was more tyranny and everything was falling apart. And then one pastor, one person, Jonathan Edwards, said, "You know, this isn't right." And he he was the spark that lit this wildfire that became a revival. We need that revival. Number one. Number two. Whose fault is it that these kids aren't learning this or aren't believing in God? And everybody will say, "Well, the school system and the." Uh, uh, the, the teachings on the entertainment industry and the movies and the music. No, look in the mirror. We didn't, we weren't the spiritual leaders of our households. We were supposed to be, and we're all guilty. I'm guilty. Yeah. And our pastors are also not involved in civics. They're not preaching that you need to be involved. Oh, I'm just supposed to evangelize. That's all I'm supposed to do is mm -hmm. what I hear. Yeah. A friend of mine, uh, Trevor Loudon, just came out with a movie called uh, uh, Enemies Within the Church, and it talks about how the church has been infiltrated as well. Mm. And so we've got a real problem here. And if we're going to wait for the pastors or the politicians to fix it, we got another thing coming. Look in the mirror. Mm. We need to get our spiritual house in order as Americans. We need to, uh, I'm, and I, I just lost track of where it is in the Bible, but it says that that if my, if my people repent and call out my name, I will heal their land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is what we need to do uh, first. That's the first step. Then there's a second step after that. that I would love to talk about. Yeah. And, and um, I, I want to quote another. Uh, I thought this was really powerful. And you were you were um, referencing the founding fathers and um, their view of things. 
this is a quote from uh, Benjamin Rush. And he says here, I do not believe that the Constitution was the offspring of inspiration, but I am as satisfied that it is as much the work of a divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old and New Testament. By renouncing the Bible, philosophers swing from their moorings upon all moral subjects. It is the only correct map of the human heart that ever has been published. And um, back to this. Uh, we Benjamin got- Rush, by the way, was a, do- a medical doctor and uh, a big supporter of the Constitution. He feared the lack of Bill of Rights at first, along with some of the other anti-federalists. But, uh, but ultimately, he was happy with what the Constitution became. So, so, you know, along these same lines, and, and I want to talk about, um, you know, what you were saying, what is the, the second step here, moving our country back in the right direction of, like you said, it's, it's to repent first and to get right with God. And, um, and, and the virtuous, uh, the virtuous people is necessary. The knowledgeable people is necessary. You cannot be virtuous without God. Um, because, Benjamin Rush here says you've lost your moorings. There's well, well, let me give you a quick story on something that'll help you understand this. Sure. So during the first four to five weeks of the, of the Constitutional Convention of Philadelphia in 1787, they were fighting like cats and dogs. They got nothing done. The only thing they got done was they had adopted James Madison's basic framework for the Constitutional Convention and the, the Constitution itself. And, and when I say basic framework, I'm talking an outline and some lines and scribbles. And they had voted uh, George Washington as president of the convention. That's it. Everything else was pure fighting. The uh, elder statesman in the room, 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin, you know, that deist that's not supposed to be a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, I told you he wasn't a very good deist. Here's a good example. So, um, So he's watching all this fighting. He says, gentlemen, we have forgotten something. Have we forgotten our powerful friend that when we were... During the war, we were on our knees to the Father of Lights. Should we not be in that prayer during this time, important time in history? If he knows every sparrow that falls to the ground, surely he is involved in the affairs of men and the creation of empires. And he recommended they pray before each session. What's funny mm-hmm. about it is then uh, a contingency, a segment of the convention led by Alexander Hamilton argued against his proposal. Oh, wow. uh, Alexander Hamilton's quote was, we do not need foreign aid. He feared that if they went into prayer, the people would think they didn't know what they were doing, and that's why they're reaching out to God. Or at least that's what he said. That's what he claimed. I think was, he had other reasons, too. Yeah. So for four days, they argued over whether or not to pray. Oh, wow. And then at the end of that argument, someone moved that they hire a clergy to lead them a prayer before each session, and somebody seconded it. But it went down in the vote, not because they believe they shouldn't be praying, but because they couldn't afford the clergy. And they really didn't want the outside eyes to really know what they're up to because they were afraid they would misunderstand what they were up to. But then what do you do? So the ones that wanted to pray, what they decided to do is walk down to the nearest church, which was a Calvinist uh, reformed church. But they but they got a hold of a pastor they trusted, a guy named William Rogers. He was a Baptist minister who, when the Revolutionary War broke out, took off his black robes and put on a uniform and went with the troops and he fought with the troops and he was a chaplain during the Revolutionary War. He led them in their first prayer. Ironically, it was on July 4th, 1787. Oh, wow. And I, matter of fact, I've got the prayer uh, somewhere on one, of, on one of my websites. I, a matter of fact, I wrote about it, oh, I don't know, a week or two ago on Political Pistachio. But, and you know what happened after that prayer, folks? The miracle. 
the miracle, the constitutional, because those guys that went into the constitutional convention, a lot of people don't realize this also. John Taylor explains this in his book, A New View of the Constitution of the United States, published in 1823. They all went as nationalists. They were all big government guys when they went in. Interesting. Huh? So, so let me let me afraid let me frame that for you properly. A bunch of big government politicians. I won't I won't give any parties. I won't talk about party, but it has something to do with the donkey. And they say, "Hey, we're going to write a new constitution for you. Nothing to worry about. Are you going to feel good about it? Probably not." That's what was happening. Big government guys said, hey, we're going to write a new constitution. A bunch of guys walked out of the Constitutional Convention over it. Two guys from New York, one being Robert Yates, was like, you're going to write a new constitution? That's it. We're out of here. Um, and so it was, but as they went through the process and they gave, put it in the hands of God, most of them changed from being big government guys to what we have with the constitution. They believed in that limited government. Mm. Madison was a big government-minded guy going in. He was more like Hamilton going in. He was more like Jefferson coming out. Oh, wow. It was an amazing... So it, so the miracle wasn't just the writing of this. But the miracle was that most of those men suddenly changed their perspective. Hmm. It's an amazing thing when God gets involved, how you can sometimes change your perspective. I'm sure you've seen it. That's I was unevenly sure. yoked in my marriage for 21 years. My wife accepted the Lord. Bam. Her change of perspective made it for a great marriage. Now we're married 37 years and we're happy as heck. That's but awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what God can do to your perspective. And it and he did it to the and he did it for those uh constitutional convention delegates. It's an amazing thing. Prayer is an amazing thing. We've seen it. Yeah. We saw it with the constitution. So All why why place. are we not following the same lead now? So so let's get to the second second part of this uh solution that we are talking about. Um Break that down for us. What's the second part of the, the solution right. here? So the first is to be a virtuous people. The second is to become a republic again. The republic has mechanisms that were in place. The mechanisms protected us against the dangers of tyranny, aristocracy, and even democracy. Hmm. And two and, and two of the key is the ones we'll, or the ones I'm going to talk about. There's many of them. We could be on for hours and hours and hours if I got into this. So I'm going to focus on two key ones. The first one is the 17th Amendment. The 17th Amendment was ratified in 1913. And what it did is it changed the U.S. Senate. The U.S. Senate originally was the voice of the states. They appointed the U.S. senators. They were not voted in by the people. And the reason why the states did that with the writing of the Constitution is because it was the delegates from the states that were writing this Constitution and creating the federal government. So they wanted to make sure that the state legislatures had an oversight over everything the federal government did. Mm. And those U.S. senators was a part of that mechanism of having oversight. So now you've got the state legislature's people who they appointed involved in the lawmaking process, in approving treaties, in confirming nominations for judges and things like that. It's huge. When the 17th Amendment was put into play, the states, the state legislatures, lost their suffrage in the Senate. And that's the way it's worded in Article 5. Article 5 says that no state shall lose its equal suffrage without its consent. Now, so that's an interesting thing. So, so the states lost some of their power, some of their influence in well, the federal they're, government. Well, they're, their oversight. They're yeah. the parents. Yeah. They're the ones that created this thing. Not only were they removed, they were forced to give the, the their child the keys to the liquor cabinet and the Ferrari. We're in yeah. trouble here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay, the, the, the states also used to, before the 16th Amendment, used to review all of the budgets. Oh, wow. 
the electors for president were appointed by the state legislatures. The state legislatures were involved in every aspect of the federal, the federal government could not do anything without indirect or direct approval by the state legislatures mm. originally. Now you just think of that statement right there. That's an amazing thing. It is, we would yeah. not be in trouble if that was going on. It's wildly different than what we're experiencing now. Wildly the fed, the different. Federal so we need just... to be a republic. So yeah. 17th Amendment's a part of it, is that the state legislatures need to appoint the uh, U.S. senators again. Now it ties into the second thing. This is the reason why I'm putting them together. The second thing is called Reynolds v. Sims. In 1964, Reynolds v. Sims. Here's what happened. When the U.S. Senate was created, and the, our government was created, the whole federal government, back way back with the Constitution, the states modeled their legislative systems after the federal system. Mm. So your assembly or, or a state house of representatives, depending on what the state calls it, that was like the house of representatives. In, uh, the people were, the members of that body were voted in democratically, based on districts that were based on population. Mm. No different than today. But the state Senate was based on the U.S. Senate, not by population, rather than, so because U.S. Senate is what? Two per state, right? The state Senates were one per county, regardless of population. Mm. And they weren't voted in. They were appointed by the county legislature, which today we call the Board of Supervisors. Now, mm. the reason for doing that is because, and Madison and Jefferson talks about this quite a bit, tyranny rises out of population centers. So we got to find a way to make sure the rural areas also have a voice. Mm. By doing things that's based on uh, these uh, segments of land rather than population, you're giving the rural areas a larger voice. So, so the this rural is... areas have a little bit louder voice in the Senate than they do in the House, right? Yeah, Same can thing I with the states? Can I ask you about this because okay. uh, this is really? I feel like this is a really key point, mm -hmm. um, which is you said that tyranny rises out of population centers. Can you explain that a little bit further for for our listeners? Uh, because I, I think that's something that's not explained too often. Jefferson argued that the United States should be an agrarian society because it was agrarian areas where uh, the politics uh, were not tyrannical. Why? Because the people had to work the land, take care of themselves, be individualistic, and they didn't depend on government. That's a natural uh, result of being in an agrarian area. When you get into the cities, what happens is people congregate, they, they begin to expect uh, gifts from the treasury, and then the politicians realize it. So they offer gifts to certain people to get their votes. And before you know it, you have an entitlement system. And once you have an entitlement system and you can buy the votes of the people, the tyrants will be the ones that will be more successful with that. So, I don't think, it, and it creates a system of tyranny. I don't think I've ever heard that before. I think that's that's not a point. That, that that's many, what happened in Rome. Yeah, Rome's so, a great example. Yeah, that's that's powerful because uh, again, that just really emphasizes the, the whole um, reason that we have what you were just explaining one person per county versus, yeah. you know, now, now, now here's, here's what's interesting. Now let's yeah. talk about California for just a second on that. Just hypothetically, if California was just, of course we have 58 counties, 40 centers. So uh, we would probably either wind up with 58 centers or a couple of centers you know, representing two counties. But if we went back to the old way of doing it and it was no longer about population, do you think this California state Senate would look a little different? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> How many States do you think that would be true in? Illinois, maybe New York, Connecticut, the others, a number of states where that would change, where suddenly you're going to have these split legislatures if we went back that old way. Now, 
if we've gotten rid of the 17th Amendment and the legislatures are appointing the senators and we have a split legislature, are we going to have two Democrats from California, for example? No, you're going to have two uh, uh, parties on, with, uh, on the two different parts of the legislature in California. So they're going to have to compromise. Yeah. So suddenly you've got a Republican from California in the Senate. Uh, based on my calculations, if we were to get rid of Reynolds v. Sims and the 17th Amendment and that were to happen, we would wind up somewhere be- between somewhere between 70 and 75 uh, Republican U.S. senators in the U.S. Senate. Wow. Now, what so are now the my question is this. Yeah. yeah. Does that change the dynamics of what we're up against? Yes. If we become a republic again, all the other stuff starts falling into place just with those two things. Mm. The other stuff now becomes easier because oh, yeah. we have those two things in place. And we have to be a republic again. And those are just two mechanisms. That's just two of them. Yeah. And if in most just, people's conversations, people have completely dropped, dropped the word republic. It's, it's we're a democracy. People oh, have yeah, this idea of democracy. Now, but but how, do, how do we get those two mechanisms in place? And see, this is what I've been wanting to tell you. So when the 17th Amendment was ratified, there's nine states that never ratified it. Two of them weren't states yet. Hawaii and Alaska. When they became states, they didn't need to. It's already ratified. Mm. Six of the states were uh, in the South, you know, Virginia and, and South Carolina, Georgia and Louisiana and so forth. And they just never ratified it. They didn't necessarily agree with it, but they didn't, they didn't need to anyway. It's already been ratified. Then there was one state that said, no, we disagree with this. We refuse to give a ratification voice vote. No. Utah. Utah was also one of the last states to give in to Reynolds v. Sims and change their state Senate to the new way of doing things after the Warren court uh, ruled against Alabama doing it the old way and then ordered all the states to be more democratic with their state senates, Reynolds v. Sims. And Utah was one of the last states to change over. So what I'm working on, one of the things I'm working on, and and this is where folks, if you want to help out, constitutionassociation.com is my nonprofit, and I, I do this stuff through the nonprofit is we are working on developing relationships with the legislature in Utah. Because if any state has the right to say, you know what, we're going to defy this. We're not going to ask permission. We're just going to start appointing our senators again. If any state has the authority and the right to do that, it's Utah. And if any state, when it comes to political thinking, would be willing to do something like that, Utah is one of them. So I am trying to work. As a matter of fact, uh, I've got a couple of people who know legislators. We haven't gotten developed the relationship with the legislators yet. We're working on it. But if we can get Utah now to buck the system and say, you know what, we're going to do it the old way. What's going to happen? Lawsuit. And everybody says, yeah, but Doug, you'll lose a lawsuit. Perhaps. First of all, I wouldn't lose it. Utah would be federal government versus Utah, first of all. Second of all, that's not the court I'm trying to convince. If there is the federal government sues the state over something like defying the 17th Amendment and Reynolds v. Sims, what's going to happen? Everybody's going to hear about it. Education. Court of public (laughs) opinion. Yeah. If the court of public opinion gets educated and says, whoa, I didn't know about this. This is crazy. Wait a second. How can I work on something in my state? Suddenly, we've got an explosion. We got a virtuous people and a call for going back to the republic at the same time. Good things come out of it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Does Utah have the incentive to do that? Do they have the incentive I, to even- I think they do, but I haven't convinced them of that yet because I haven't had a yeah. chance to get in front of their legislators. This is something we've been working on since last September. 
Okay. Uh, so it's a, so it's new. I also have a, a court case I've been dealing with. Uh, we're actually Constitutional Association actually has a has a lawsuit against Kamala Harris for being ineligible for office. Uh, natural born citizen requires both parents to be citizens at the time of your birth. Being a, born in Oakland is not enough, according to historical documents. And both of her parents were students here on student visas. They were not citizens. So wow. we so we sued her uh, after a year. And by the way, she defaulted. She has never responded, but the U.S. government has, but not on her behalf. They finally dismissed the case of a couple of weeks ago. So we, so we appealed to the Ninth Circuit. And we just were given the green light from the court a week ago to give our reason for the appeal. But we need to have our uh, reason behind the appeal in by the 25th of January. So, yeah, I'm doing a lot of people don't realize how in there I am. With stuff. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. And <laughs> people huge. say, well, Doug, do you really think you can win? No, but if word gets out, Court of public opinion. People yeah. are going to want to know more about this stuff. They're going to want to learn. And the, and in the future, they're going to not put up with this garbage. Oh, I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah, you got to get in there and get your hands dirty. So that's <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, well, I, and and, and uh, as uh, people around me have learned about me, I have this weird desire to sometimes just run to the edge of a cliff and jump. And uh, <laughs> so, and, and that's what great. we did with this Kamala case. So I've got some great people around me. Uh, you know, uh, funding has been up and down. Donations are always, of course, contributions are always welcome. Uh, yeah. Either one of those websites you could do so. But, uh, uh, it, you know, it's, and it's necessary. It is. And now it gets back to what I, the very beginning of our show, it's necessary to be God, a godly, have a godly foundation to get this country back where it belongs. But yeah. guess what? Being godly is a wonderful thing. And that's the starting point. But you know what? It's nothing if there's no action to go along with it. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, Doug, I'm really grateful for you being <laughs> on the program today. And um, thank you. I think what you're doing is fantastic. So I'll continue to spread the word. And for those of you listening, um, and if this if this stirs your heart, um, get involved. DouglasVGibbs.com, PoliticalPistachio.com. And uh, tell us the the uh, the foundation again. Constitution Association. If you want to go to the website, ConstitutionAssociation.com. And the best way to email me is at ConstitutionSpeaker at Yahoo.com. ConstitutionSpeaker at Yahoo.com. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks again, Doug, for being on the program. Oh, I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, for those of you listening, uh, my website, again, is educateforlife.org. All kinds of resources on there, all kinds of classes you can take on everything uh, oriented towards apologetics and defending the Christian faith and really the Christian worldview and its influence on our culture in every possible way, whether that's government, whether that's uh, what's going on in our schools and um, our social issues, all the different things are available there on my website. You can check that out. We'll be back again next week with another really special guest and uh, a lot of really uh, great stuff. So uh, I look forward to seeing you next time. God bless you. I hope you have a fantastic week. Take care.